So we're going to turn to the Word right now, and, uh, and as we do so, I'm going to invite you to bow with me and let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. Father, I, I thank you for this holy moment that we've been led in, in which we sing, You are all to us. And, and Lord, of truth be known, uh, we strive for that, but we fall so very short uh, in our daily lives. And yet, Lord, it's such a wonderful song to sing, to, to, to know that at the end of the day, that's what heaven is going to be like, and that's what we're practicing here on earth. True submission to your lordship, to your leadership, to your sovereignty in our lives. So God, I pray that as we have sung that song, as our hearts now are focused upon that aspect of you, as we talk about a very important subject for our lives today, give us wisdom. Give us insight. May your spirit move and, and blow and breathe in this place and in our campuses and venues. And may you be honored and may you be glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen. You can be seated. Well, uh, last week we started a new series, a spring series here at our church entitled A Beautiful Mess. A beautiful mess. We're looking at one single chapter in the Gospel of John, which chronicles one single meal that Jesus had with his disciples, his last meal, and we're noting what a mess it was during this meal. If you haven't read the chapter, read it and you'll feel that. The action ping-pongs back and forth between things like forgiveness and then betrayal and then glory and then love and then it ends with denial. I mean, it's a true mess if there ever was one, but we're also noting that with the presence and involvement of Jesus, he is able to turn this mess into a beautiful mess. And as I was studying this last summer in preparation for this ministry year, and I was recognizing this aspect of the Last Supper, I thought of all of you, and I thought of me, and I thought of the fact that our lives can get very messy at times as well, and could it be that, that the Lordship of Christ in our lives is about turning our mess into a beautiful mess? And so what we're doing in this series is looking at these five themes and matching them up against our lives and seeing what God might do in turning our mess into a beautiful mess. And so we kicked off last week by talking about divine forgiveness, God's forgiveness of us in Jesus. And this week, we're gonna get to the flip side of forgiveness, and that is our forgiveness of each other, something that most of us have found is very messy indeed. So let's read what Jesus has to say. Let's continue on in our journey through John 13 and this last supper that Jesus is having with his closest followers. We're gonna be reading verses 12 through 20. If you brought a Bible with you or at our Cactus Campus in Mountain Valley and then also at a chapel and venue, if you have a Bible, then open it now. If not, look up here to the monitor and let's follow along as I read what happens next in the action here in John 13. It says, when he, Jesus, had washed there the disciples' feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen. 
But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who sends, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, sadly speaking, I gotta tell you guys, this account has been significantly misunderstood by some, if not many, scholars and everyday Bible readers alike. You see, some people see this as Jesus calling us to serve one another. That he washed the feet and he served the disciples and so they argue that you need to take up the serving towel and serve one another. Others argue that this is a call from Jesus to show humility to one another. Just as Jesus showed humility in washing the disciples' feet, then we need to show humility to one another. And in both cases, they link either this service or this humility to the foot washing and say that Jesus said we need to wash each other's feet. And though these might be some neat side themes going on here, I can categorically tell you that this is not the main thing that Jesus is trying to get across when he says in verse 15 that you should do as I have done to you. It's not. And so let's quickly review last week, which will help us to dial in to what Jesus had just done to the disciples in hopes of discovering what he means when he says to you and I that we need to do the same thing. You might remember last week we looked at the first 11 verses and we used these props to show that Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, now watch this, as a symbol of the forgiveness that he was about to purchase for them on the cross. That's really important that you understand this. We poured the water in the basin here and showed how Jesus took the towel and wrapped it around his waist, and then he walked, to each, walked over to each of the disciples and he washed the dust off their feet. It gets dusty in that Mediterranean culture over there. And then he gets to Peter, and you guys might remember this, Peter basically says to Jesus, are you gonna wash my feet? And Jesus gives the first hint of what he's getting at. Let's review verse seven. It says, Jesus answered Peter, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Afterward what? After the cross. This is Jesus' last supper. He's gonna be arrested, he's gonna be tried, he's gonna be crucified on a cross, and that crucifixion is central to all of history because it's where Jesus, the Bible tells us, bore the sins of humankind upon himself so that we might be forgiven for those of us who believe before Almighty God. Jesus is hinting to that here. He's saying you don't understand the symbol of foot washing now, but afterward, you're gonna get it. But Peter doesn't get it now. And so he says, no way, you're not gonna wash my feet. Jesus gives us the second hint in verse eight. It says, Jesus answered Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. <laughs> wow, and, and again, if this is just about foot washing, then that seems awfully harsh, doesn't it? I mean, he's just washing his feet. It's good old Middle Eastern hospitality. And, he, and he's saying, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. Wow. So this has to be about more than foot washing. This is about the forgiveness of our sins. If our sins aren't forgiven, we're not connected with God. There's a barrier, a cavern between God and us. 
And the reality is Jesus is saying that when our sins are forgiven, we now do have share with him. And so Peter, still not getting it, says, well, gosh, if that's the case, then wash all of me. <laughs> and Jesus then gets to the core of it in verse 10. And with this, we're gonna move on. It says, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you, Peter, are clean. And there it is. This is the image explained. It's not about foot washing. The foot washing was a symbol to say that just as water washes dirt from the body and makes us completely clean, so Christ's blood is gonna wash our souls clean of our sin to bring us to God. But we go through life and our feet still get dirty because we still struggle and mess up and sin at times. And so he continues to provide forgiveness for us by washing our feet as we go along, keeping us completely clean. And we ended last week by noting that this is the most profound core of the gospel that God forgives. It's heart and soul of the gospel. And it's what Jesus' foot washing was meant to connote. Washing feet is akin to washing our souls through forgiveness. Now, let me ask you, when Jesus then goes back to his seat here in verse 12 and says, okay guys, do you get what I have just done to you? You say I'm your Lord and teacher, good. Now wash each other's feet and keep doing this. I've set the pace for you in this. Knowing that the foot washing is a symbol, Jesus just made that very clear in verse 10, a symbol of forgiveness, of cleansing of sin. When he now says that we're to wash each other's feet, here's the $10 question. What do you think he means by that? Anybody wanna take a stab at it? I'll tell you right now. It's not service, and it's not humility. I mean, do you see this? I mean, those are nice side themes going on here. It takes humility to wash feet. We serve each other when we wash feet. But in keeping with the message that Jesus has gotten across already, it's forgiveness that he is after here. Give me a head nod that you see this that when we wash each other's feet, because he's using it figuratively, he's referring to forgiveness. That just as he brought forgiveness to our souls in order to bring us to God, that's the symbol of the cleansing, we are now to do the same for each other. We are to wash each other's feet when our feet get dirty through hurting each other, forgiving each other when that happens. Or, to say it in a more Shakespearean fashion, this is point one on your outline, and I don't know any other way to say it, but this is what Jesus is saying, to forgive or not to forgive, there is no question. <laughs> Did you know that? I, I mean, I have people ask me all the time, you know, so-and-so offended me or whatever, should I forgive them or not? What's the answer to that? Uh, of course you should. Uh, the reality, I mean, Jesus is basically saying here in this Last Supper, I have forgiven you for your sins. I've washed you completely clean. And even when your feet get dirty, if you 1 John 1, 9 that sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says, if you do that, I'm gonna keep washing you. I'm gonna keep forgiving you. It's an amazing thing about the gospel. And all Jesus is saying here now is as forgiven ones, guess what? You now need to forgive. 
Now, once we've established this, here's what I just want to admit right up front, because I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, yeah, 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 we need to forgive each other. I know that. But, Jamie, forgiveness of each other is a lot easier said than done. And here's what you need to know. I, I know that. <laughs> I know that because I'm married. I, I know that because I have children. I, I have an extended family with brothers-in-laws and sisters-in-laws and parents-in-laws. And I, I have my own parents and I have neighbors and I have coworkers and I have thousands of church people to contend with week in and week out. If anybody knows that life is messy and that relationships are messy and that forgiveness is hard, believe me, I know that. And let's be really honest since we're being honest right now. Uh, here's what also we won't want to admit about forgiveness, but I think most of us would own in our weaker moments, and that is that Jesus' call to wash each other's feet here, to forgive each other and offer each other cleansing, quite frankly, seems to add to the mess at times. Have you ever found that? I mean, the reason we know this is because, at least for me, it would be a lot easier at times if I could just write off some of the EGRs in my life. An EGR is an extra grace required person, and we all have them in our lives. In fact, you might be that person in somebody's life. But we all have extra grace required people. And quite frankly, there are times when I think it'd be a lot easier for me just to tell them to go to heaven and deal with them then. And we laugh at that, but you know what? It's true. I mean, there's times where I'm in the messiness of a relationship, and I think to myself, I want to pull a Jonah right now. You remember Jonah? He resisted God, and he ran. And he said, I don't want to go preach forgiveness to the Ninevites. And he went as far away from them as he could. Why? Because his logic said, this is already a mess. And if I go try to deal with the forgiveness issue with them, it's just going to complicate things even more. Let them contend for themselves. I'm going this way. And there's many times where you and I think like that, at least I do, and we think forgiveness and trying to do so is only going to complicate things. And yet here's what we need to recognize first and foremost today, and that is that it only seems that way. And the reason that we know it only seems that way, and this is my only argument with you, is that God says different and God must no better. You see, God knows that there's something about you and me engaging in the battle of forgiveness of people who have deeply hurt us, that there's something in that that's going to glorify him, give us peace and joy, and, and get us out of the realm of resentment and bitterness and all those other things, and also maybe even give an element of freedom and love to another person's life. So it's glory to God, joy and freedom to us, and then forgiveness for other people. And those we're going to see in a second here, it's very, very hard won and hard fought. Jesus knows that this is where the battle is found, and he wants us all engaging in the battle. And so based upon this call, this really command of Jesus is here to forgive, the question that I want us to wrestle with in the remaining time that we have here today is how? I mean, if forgiveness is easier said than done, but clear, Jesus clearly says, blessed are you if you do this in verse 15 or verse 17, then how do we actually forgive each other? How do we actually offer each other cleansing similar to how Jesus has done for us who believe? And the answer to this question might surprise you. 
Because the answer to this question is not how many well-meaning Christians answered. Have you ever noticed their answer when you say, well, how do I forgive? They say, I don't know, just do it. And I don't know about you, I hate that answer. That is not helpful at all. Do we all understand that? Because I already knew that. I mean, I already knew that I need to do it. Jesus said that in verse 17. My question is how do I do it? Because it doesn't seem to come very easy. And the answer is surprising because contained in the process, now watch this, contained in the process of how God has actually forgiven you is a recipe for how you can forgive those around you. Let me repeat that. Contained in the intricate process, we're going to spell out this process here in a minute, it's more intricate than most Christians think. In the intricate process of how God has forgiven you is a recipe for how you and me can forgive those around us. And to make our way to this recipe, we need to first wrestle with something that might seem simple but really isn't, and that, and that is what is the process that God has followed in order to forgive us of our sins? What are the steps that he has taken? Because contrary to popular opinion, God didn't wave a magic wand into heaven and say, you're forgiven. (laughs) The Bible doesn't know any silliness like that. God went through some historic and even present day steps in order to secure our potential forgiveness of our sins. And let's talk about that right now. The first thing that God has done, which is really the foundation of it all, is provide atonement for our sin. He's provided atonement. Simply put, he gave his son, rooted in history, 2,000 years ago, crucified on a wooden cross to bear the full weight of our sin upon him in order to atone or pardon our sin. It was payment of our sin. As we argued last week, this is the crux of the gospel. It's the foundation of it all. As the Bible says, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is one of the most powerful things in all of history, that God loves you and me so much that he sent his son to bear our present day sins upon himself, to bear God's anger upon himself, so that he has none of that left over for us. That's the gospel. And you should also know that the atonement is a once-for-all entity that only Jesus could provide. So in following God's process, this is going to free some of you up, atonement doesn't play into the recipe for you and I to forgive. In other words, what God's not going to ask us to do to forgive is to give our lives on a wooden cross for each other. (laughs) He doesn't ask that because that's already been done. But it is the foundation of it all. For believers, he has atoned for us and now put his spirit in us. This spirit gives us resurrection power coursing through our very souls so that as forgiven ones, we are now capable of offering forgiveness to those around us. The atonement becomes the foundation, the backbone of you and I being able to forgive. Now, With that said, going back to God, let's notice what else he has done to secure our forgiveness because based on the atonement, God has done two additional things. He's taken two additional steps that fully apply and accomplish our forgiveness. Many Christians fail to realize this. Let me show you what those first two, what those steps are. And that is based on the atonement, God has said about our sin that he lets it go and that he doesn't hold it against us. 
And those are two steps that God has taken in order to forgive us. That based on what Jesus did on the cross and then your belief and trust in him, God responds to that by saying, of your sin, I let it go and I don't hold it against you. And what you guys need to know is that these two steps are very clearly laid out in the Bible. Let me show you the first one, let it go. In Psalm 103, verse 12, I love this image. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he, God, remove our transgressions from us. Now, you know what's cool about this passage? This was written probably about 1,000 years B.C., so 3,000 years ago. And it was written in a culture in which Copernicus and Galileo had not yet discovered some things about our world. What is it that they discovered? That the world is not flat and that the earth is not the center of the universe. But back then when this was written, and this is important to understand, within that culture, when the psalmist says that God has thrown our sins as far as the east is from the west, he was thinking flat earth. He was thinking a straight line. So let me ask you, if you draw a line in that understanding of the world all the way to the east and then draw another line all the way to the west, when do those lines meet? Does anybody know? Never, <laughs> never. I, I mean, in our understanding of the world today, they'd meet in about, what, however long it takes to go around the earth. But the reality is, in that culture, what the psalmist is trying to say is draw an infinite line that way, draw an infinite line that way. That's how much God has let go of your sin. As far as the east is from the west, it's gone. He has let it go. And then there'll be another image in the prophet Micah that he gives, again, prophesying about Jesus's forgiveness of our sin. Micah 7, 19 says, he will again have compassion on us he will tread our iniquities underfoot. I like that one. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And again, you know, you and I today have submarines. We have scuba diving gear. We've explored much of the ocean bottom. But 500 years, this was written about 500 years before the time of Christ, do we all understand that if they were out fishing on the sea and they happened to drop something into the water, they would say, it's now gone. Because they weren't gonna dive to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea in order to get it. Nobody had ever been there in that culture. Some people paraphrase this passage here. Some of you have heard it, that God throws our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. That's actually not in the Bible. Uh, that's Micah 7:19 paraphrase, but it's a good paraphrase because that's what the prophet is getting at here. He's saying that when, when our sins are forgiven by God, it's like they're thrown in the depths of the sea where nobody can get at them anymore. God has let it go based on the atonement of Jesus. And then he doesn't hold it against us. This is 2 Corinthians 5:19. I love this one. That is in Christ. God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This one's powerful, gang. It simply means, how many of you guys have ever apologized to God more than once for the same sin? Raise your hand if you've ever done that. I think a lot of us do. If you're married, you're used to doing that, right? So, you know, you, you mess up with the spouse or, or men with your wife, you know, and you say, I'm sorry, but you realize that sorry is quite not enough. And so you say it about 10 more times and, and then eventually you might, you just might be out of the doghouse, but it takes a good 10 times. 
God's not into that. Do y'all, do y'all understand that? You apologize once to God as a Christian. He applies the foot washing and he washes the dust off your feet. And if you go to him again, as many of us do, and say, you know what, God, I just got, I'm still not over that thing. And I just want you to know, I really, really, really am sorry. If you could hear his voice at the time, you know what he'd say to you? What sin? I've let it go as far as east is from the west, and I don't count it against you anymore, so it's gone. So I wish you'd stop apologizing because <laughs> it's not there anymore. See, that's how powerful his forgiveness is of you and me. Don't miss this. There is a two-step process that God applies to our lives based on the atonement of Jesus that allows him to fully and freely forgive us of our sin. He lets it go. He doesn't count it against us. It's a way that God takes our mess and turns it into a beautiful mess. And we plumbed the depths of that a little bit last week. Now, here's what I've realized over the years when it comes then to forgiving those around us based on what Jesus has done for us. And that is that as I established earlier, we can't atone for others' sin because Jesus is the only one who can do that. But based on Jesus' atonement for us and them, here's the deal. We can follow God in the two-step process based on the atonement. In other words, there is a recipe for you and me here contained in God's process of forgiveness, and it's not a recipe of atonement, that's been done, but it is a recipe in which we can choose to follow God in choosing to let it go and not hold it against others. Many people wrestle with what the definition of forgiveness is. And though it is somewhat complicated, because in the Bible there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation and things like that, I can promise you that the way God defines forgiveness is through letting it go and not holding it against another person. And what I found even more life-giving and liberating here is something that I've only learned from trying to apply this for 35 years as a Christian, 30 years as a pastor, in all kinds of scenarios over the years. And I think some of you might like this. Try to follow my logic here. And that is that if I can do the first step here when somebody hurts me and, let it, lets it, and I can let it go, then the, ease, the second step easily falls into place. Give me a head nod that you guys get that. Because if I've let it go, then I'm not gonna hold it against them. But if I can't do the first step, and there are certainly times that I can't, what I do is move on to the second step, which I'm gonna argue with you in a second here, we can choose to do. And by behaviorally doing the second step over time, it helps me accomplish the first step. And so here's how it works. If somebody hurts me and I can let it go, then it's easy for me to say I won't hold that hurt against them because I've let it go. But there are times where somebody hurts me, and let's just be very honest here, we or I can't let it go. And the reason that I can't let it go is because letting it go, now watch this, involves the entire person. It involves your thoughts, it involves your emotions, it involves your behavior, it involves your will, it involves your motives and things like that. And as a fallen human being, there are times when people hurt me, and maybe it's just me, but I don't think so, I can't let it go. 
And so I pray and I read the daily bread twice and I, and, I, and I ask other people's help and I get them praying for me and I still can't let it go. And so when that happens, what do you do outside of feeling miserable? Well, what I do is say, okay, God, I'm having trouble letting this go. And I move on to the second step, even though I can't accomplish the first one, and I choose not to hold the hurt against the other person while I'm trying to let go. And believe it or not, gang, many times this works. And the reason it works is because I'm allowing forgiveness to be a process. I'm honoring the fact that God, who has chosen to forgive us, is God. He gave his son, there's the atonement. Based on that, he chooses not to, to let it go and not hold it against us. But I'm not God. I'm a fallen human being for whom forgiveness is gonna be a, a hard one, hard fought process in my life. And there are times where I just can't let it go, but what I can do is not hold it against the other person. You're saying, well, what do you mean by that? Well, think about what we do when we hold a hurt against another person. You think ill of them, you curse them, you shun them, you avoid them, you gossip about them, and even if you don't ver do it verbally, you tell them, I wish you'd go to heaven, or maybe even a worse place. That's what we do when we are holding a sin or a hurt against somebody. And my point is, is that at least for me, I can behaviorally choose not to do those things. <laughs> I, I can choose not to think ill of them. I can choose not to curse them. I can choose not to shun them. I can choose not to gossip about that. And I can certainly choose to not tell them to go to heaven. I like how Eugene Peterson says it. He says things so well. He says, muckraking is not gospel work. Witch hunting is not gospel work. Shaming the outcast is not gospel work. Forgiving sin is gospel work. And to use Peterson's language here, when you and I are having trouble forgiving sin because we just can't seem to let it go, you can avoid muckraking. You can avoid witch hunting. You certainly can avoid shaming you can choose to do those things. And here's what I have found. Over time, through choosing to do that, <laughs> I might just be able to let it go. I'm gonna tell you a story of something that happened to me just this week, and uh, I'm really reticent to tell you this story because I'm, I'm, believe it or not, I'm very much not proud of this aspect of my character. Uh, but you guys always say you love it when I get authentic, and I've always said that if my um, you know, uh, shameful, shameful endeavors at discipleship failure encourage you, then I got a lot of those. And so I'm, I'm gonna do so right now. And, uh, and, and, and it's not a really serious issue, which is why I feel kind of shameful about it, but I think it really speaks to what you and I are wrestling with here today. So here it is. Uh, last Monday, and Monday's my day off, Kim and I uh, decided to go out and look at houses. Uh, we've been in our same house for 10 years. It's bigger than we need. The kids are gone. And so we've been toying with the idea of downsizing or as baby boomers like to do, resize their house. And, uh, and so I, I, I've been looking at different neighborhoods. And, and this one particular neighborhood that we're going to that day, now this might surprise you in this community, was a gated neighborhood. I know it's rare, but we were going to this gated community when we don't live in one now. And it was a guard-gated community. And uh, usually I couldn't afford that, but this particular house was within our price range. So we went up to the guard-gated community there, and I said, we're going to look at this house. 
And uh, the guy, you know, did what they always do with those. He takes down your license plate, strip searches you, gets your fingerprints, you know, and things like that. And, and, and after all the rigmarole, um, he said, okay, you can go through. And just very casually, I said to him, as a young guy, a millennial guy, I said to him, um, hey, thanks a lot, dude. And I uh, started to drive through the gate. And as I was starting to pull away, I heard him mumble something. And, and I didn't understand what he said. So I stopped and I said, I'm sorry, what did you say? And he said, call me sir, not dude. Just like that. And uh, I, I got to tell you guys something about my character. And that is that I don't do well with things like that. I really don't. I, I, I've been in counseling for it. I really have. I just, when, when, when seeming authority figures get in my face, and maybe it's because I was so small as a child, I was 4'10 and 85 pounds when I was in high school, and I, I, I felt picked on. I'm telling you, when, when that happens to me, even now at 53, something in me just gets set off. My wife knows it. The elders know it. I try to work around it. I've been in therapy for it. I can't get rid of it. And so I, I, I know that about me. And the second he said that, you know, call me sir, don't call me dude, I, I just, I, I was inwardly reeling. And, and, and I'm also a quick wit. So within a nanosecond, I thought of five things that I wanted to say to him. But as I went through that Rolodex of five things, I thought there's not one of them that are godly. And so... I'm not going to do that. And so I come from good Midwestern stock. And when, um, when, when I thought I'm not going to say those five things, my mom always said that if you can't say anything nice, then don't say anything at all. So I just looked at him and I drove away. As we were driving away, my wife, who is so incredibly godly, she really is. She's such a lover of people. She said to me, she goes, you know, he's going to feel stupid for saying that later. And I thought to myself, no, he's not. <laughs> I said, that millennial kid isn't going to feel a thing for saying that. He's going to. And, and, and some of you men will get this. I, I, I drove to the house. We were looking at it. And the whole time I'm walking through this house, what am I doing? I'm fuming. And I'm brooding. And I'm like, you know, who is that kid to say that to me? I, I should have looked. And then I'm starting to think of all the things I should have said. I should have looked at him and said, sir. He would have said, sir, what? You call me, sir. But I thought that wouldn't be godly either, so I'm, I'm not going to do that. I, I was so put off by it that, that I actually got on my Google Maps and found that this neighborhood had another gate to leave that wasn't guard-gated. And I actually drove through the neighborhood and left at that gate just so I wouldn't have to see his face as I left. I mean, that, that's how mad I was. And it's my day off, and for the rest of the day, I'm in this brooding mood. I mean, I'm watching a show with Kim that night and I'm still thinking about it and I went to bed and I'm still thinking about it. And believe me, I'm not dumb. The whole time I'm saying to myself, let it go. I mean, it's a, it's a kid at a guard gate and he's insecure and he probably has issues. You don't know his life. Let it go. But I couldn't let it go. And I went to bed that night, and then the next day I wake up, and you know what's happening? I'm still thinking about it. And I'm feeling shame at this point, because I go, my gosh, I got an entire church to run. I got people with real problems. I, I got kids with real problems. I have a lot of things up late. You're still thinking about the guy at the guard gate. And I was fuming about it. And even that day, I got a phone call from somebody in that community and, and, and I'm just so manipulative because we were talking about another issue and I said, I got to tell you a funny thing that happened to me yesterday. 
I said it just like that. I said, I don't want you to do anything about this, but you know, I was driving through your gate and this kid said, isn't that funny? And you know, he said, yeah, that's kind of weird. The guy would say that to me. And I hung up with the phone and I thought, why did you even say that to him? I, I said that because I'm, I still can't let this thing go. About halfway through Tuesday, and I, I've been doing this for 30 years, I, I said, you know what, I, I'm having trouble letting this go, but I, I gotta stop holding it against that young man. I gotta stop thinking ill of him. I gotta stop thinking about calling the HOA and registering a complaint. I, I have to stop thinking about what I would say to him. I, I, I have to stop cursing him. It, it is not helping God, him, or me by me holding it against him. And for the rest of the day and into Wednesday, I just disciplined my mind and heart, submitted to God to say, I'm not doing this anymore. And, and you know what happened by about Thursday? I started to let it go <laughs> until I mentioned it to all of you today. <laughs> and now it's all dredged up again. And I'll be thinking about it all afternoon. And then I'll have to let it go again. Now, here, here's my point is that, you know, that's such a small, insignificant, stupid thing, right? But I promise you, every man in this room relates to that. And every man watching online relates to this because we can be so petty, we can get so angry over the dumbest little things. But here's the problem, is that life is filled with a lot bigger hurts, isn't it? And if it's hard for us to let go of some stupid little things, then imagine then why it's so hard for you to let go of some of the bigger ones. Some of you uh, were deeply hurt in your childhood by a family member, maybe abused. Some of you have been through a bitter divorce and that's really hard to let go of. Some of you have children who have deeply wounded you and hurt you with their actions or reactions. Some of you have a boss or a neighbor or a friend or whatever. It, it's just so, not easy, it's just life can be so wounding. And, and, and it's a funny story when you talk about a guy at a guard gate you know, hurting you and having trouble letting it go. But here's what I've learned, and that is that for the bigger stuff, the same recipe works. I got wounded 20, 30 years ago by one of my family members, and I've shared this with you. I gotta be very careful because I don't wanna betray any confidence because it's very personal between Kim and I, but I got very wounded. And for 20 years, I held a lot of resentment and bitterness and anger in my heart toward this family member. And yet it wasn't until I started to learn that if I can't let it go, then I will not hold it against them. And even then, and maybe this will help some of you, even then it took years. I mean, it's not magic. This isn't two easy steps to forgiveness, but it is a recipe, it's a process that God gives us that if we can discipline our minds and hearts empowered by his spirit, because it takes his spirit to do it, to not hold it against them, which I really think we can choose to do, to not shun, to not speak ill, to not gossip, to, to, to do the things we know we can do, then over time, God uses that to help us let it go. He, he really does. At least for me, I found that workable. And the reason that this is so important, the reason that Jesus underlines this so much at this Last Supper is our final point here today. And with this, we're done. We've just got four minutes left. And that is that Jesus knows that there awaits much beauty for those of us who learn to forgive. There really does. There awaits a lot of beauty if we can learn to let go and not hold it against it. One of our staff counselors for years on end is here in this service. And, uh, you know, she's counseled tons of people in our church. And my guess is she'd be one of the first ones to tell us that, 
you know, though forgiveness is very hard and very hard won and very hard fought, that if we stay in the ring and fight for it, it really does provide a freedom and release even for the person who is forgiving. And if that's true, imagine the freedom and release it might provide for those that we are forgiving. Uh, let me share with you one last scripture, and this will be done with this. Um, most commentators point out that it's confusing how Jesus ended this little talk with the disciples here before he moves on to the next talk in this supper, which we're going to look at next week. It's about Judas and the betrayal. Uh, Jesus ends this little talk by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And the reason it's confusing here is because Jesus has said almost those identical words earlier when he sent the disciples uh, into the world to be his messengers. But now he's saying it here in the context of washing feet and forgiving. And what some commentators point out, and I think there's some richness here, is that what Jesus is probably saying here is that when we go to those in our lives as ones who are sent and we forgive them, this gives a chance for us to put Christ on display in the way that we are forgiving them and it gives them a chance then to see Jesus and us and there's a chance that they'll receive him. And then if they receive him, then they're obviously gonna be connected with the Father. That's what he's saying here. That those who receive you receive Jesus, and they receive Jesus, they receive the one who sent him, which is the Father. And in the context of forgiveness, do you see how that just might work? That if you and I can dig deep as ones who are forgiven and forgive even atrocious hurts, even deep-seated hurts, and again, it's a process and it's over time and it takes God's spirit, but as that happens, there just might be an opportunity for Jesus to enter into that mess and not just change your heart, but even change somebody else's heart. And that's why we call this a beautiful mess. Because forgiveness is messy, but Jesus is in the habit of forgiving and he's in the habit of entering into our mess and turning it into something beautiful. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this last supper that we're spending a good month and a half in and plumbing the depths for our own lives. And God, I pray that as we each give thought, I gotta believe we're just thinking of something right now, Lord, in our own lives where forgiveness has been a very, very messy and difficult road, I pray, God, that you would um, just empower us by your spirit, God, to, to realize that you've atoned for our sins and that we are free before you and forgiven. And that, Lord, as we recognize what you've done to secure our forgiveness, to let it go and not hold it against us, may, Lord, you give us the, the ability over time, Lord, to apply that to those around us. God, we live in such a hurting world. There is so much evil. There's so much sin. There's so much mess. And we are the carriers of your grace. And so, God, I pray that you might use us, even in smaller, big ways this week, to be deliverers of your grace to a world that so desperately needs it. Help us to be those kinds of followers, we pray. Help us to wash feet. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.